I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. And welcome back to the OMG MotoGP podcast with former Grand Prix rider and British champion Keith Hewitt and myself, Harry Benjamin. Please do make sure, as always, you've liked, subscribed, left a review either here on YouTube or wherever you're listening to us. And if you ever have a question, query, comment, uh, you can send us uh, an email or a 30-second voice note over to omgmotogp at gmail.com. And I'm really pleased to say that joining Keith and I this week is another former Grand Prix rider and British champion, Steve Parrish. Welcome, Steve. Uh, You've had a busy weekend, fresh off the back of uh, Goodwood Revival and uh, announcing your retirement absolutely yes it uh, it was a frantic weekend very very hot i'm still kind of uh, trying to uh top myself up the water amount of energy that was used and the heat that was down at goodwood um and i'm about to set off to mallorca where we have a holiday home and i think it's cooler there than it is where we are right at the moment but no, i had an absolutely brilliant weekend i said last year that i was gonna quit that was my last ever race and then i got convinced by the fact that freddie sheen barry's son uh, said he would ride with me if I rode again this year. So I bowed out with the name Sheen on the results, and I was l- really pleased to see it. We we did all right as well. We finished 10th overall out of about 29 starters, and most of them were flipping British superbike riders and TT riders and everything else like that. So there was still life in the old dog as of yet. Oh, brilliant. Well, we'll come on to more of that in a moment. But, uh, of course, uh, we'll be looking back at some of the action from um, the MotoGP over the weekend too. But uh, before we even went racing, Keith, this weekend, uh, some hugely sad news from from the paddock uh, as the passing of of Mike Trimby, the head of the International uh, Racing Teams Association. uh, A really massive loss for for the whole community. Yeah, absolutely a massive loss. I mean, Steve will be with me on this one, I know, because we've known Mike for a long, long time between us. I mean, it's... uh... Mike Trimby, he was a former motorbike racer himself um, from Hoddesdon in Hertfordshire. Originally, he had the uh, first time Steve and I will have met him will have been at Planet Travel when he had a travel agency on the Kilburn High Road in, in North London. Um, we go back a long time. He ran originally the, the motorcycle show, the, the, uh, the Alley Pally. Um, we used to get a call from him. I'm sure Steve did as well. I keep talking as if I'm talking for Steve. I'm sure he's got his own 
anecdotes to come up in a minute, but you would ring you the week before the Ali Pali to say you've got a couple of stands that are empty. Would you put your bikes on it or whatever you've got as a display and you'd get involved with Mike? It's funny, I was talking to a fellow called, um, and then of course there was Daytona and Macau. You can go through that. That's before we even got to Grand Prix. I was talking to Nick Morgan yesterday, MSS Kawasaki, good guy from from down in sunny Essex. And um, he really sparked up a, a memory. And again, Steve will be with me on this one. There is very little time that I can remember through motorcycle racing where Mike and Irene Trimby were major parts of it in one way or another. You know, I talked about the yeah. show, but of course we knew Mike from before that through the travel agency and the like. And every single point of your life has revolved about, around those two people because they've either organized things or been friends with and and socially, you spent such a lot of time. I mean, I went to Las Vegas with Mike for his 60th birthday, me and my wife, Venus. You know, this, it's going to seem a very strange place. But I did an interview with him on BBC Sounds, uh, the BBC Bikes podcast, which we'll put the, the, the link to it on the, on the uh, contents below the screen if you're watching this on YouTube or wherever, because it's a, it really sums up Mike. It's from Mike as well. Um, it was recorded at Silverstone last year, 2022. And you get a real impression of what the man has done, what the man has been responsible for um, throughout motorcycle racing and how he's dedicated his life, had no children, wanted to end his days in the manner that he did. Absolutely. All of a sudden, he was no longer with us. He, there was no real succession plan. Hervé Poncherel will take over as the spokesperson and the rest of the International Race Teams Association will run without Mike uh, and Irene, because I can't imagine Irene going back there um, after Mike's passing. But the fact is that he wanted to continue in his work right to the point. And he he died on Friday night at the head of the table at dinner, feeling better than he'd ever felt. He had been ill over, over the winter period, over Christmas period, better than he'd ever felt. I spoke to John Cooper this morning, if you want famous racers, JC, um, he'd been out to dinner with him in Mizano because he, JC always invited me and Mike out for dinner. I wasn't in Mizano, so I couldn't go. But he went with Mike. And Mike said to JC, he said, I'm feeling better than I've felt for, for months and months and months. And then Friday night at dinner, at the head of the table with the full-on banter, said he felt a little bit dizzy, gone. Just like that. The right. way that Mike wanted to go. I know that's no consolation. Well, maybe it is a consolation. It was an empty restaurant that was just the, the Urta team around them. So it was a situation where he went with the people that supported him. Irene had the support of those people at that occasion, and it was no um, overly drama, which uh, it's typical Mike. He, he organized it that way. Yeah, well, I was with you, Keith, at the Royal Automobile Club uh, for when Mike was awarded the Torrens Trophy, which is only three, four months ago. Um and I remember him saying, I think it was to you, he said, I want to be carried out the paddock in a box. That was what he was planning to do because he had no other hobbies. He didn't like golf. He'd lost his dog. He'd got nothing much else that gave him any interest. So arguably uh, a bit early and it's sad, but I guess we'd all take the route that we planned, wouldn't we, if we could? I, I, think... I just feel sorry. I feel sorry for the chef that night, whatever must he have thought. I mean, I know I'm, I make funny things out of sad things at times, but I think sometimes you have to, quite honestly. And I think um, most people yeah. will have appreciated that, Stephen, know the tone that it's meant in. I mean, Mike Trimby meant a lot yeah. to all of us. Is there's, you know, We can be flippant because that's how you would have been with Mike and that's how Mike would have appreciated us. I mean, the amount of times yeah. you fell out with the man over, over some of your antics. Um, 
<laughs> well, I was going back. I knew Mike before you, I'm pretty sure, because I, sh I shared a bike with him. I met Mike through Roger Keane, who uh, we all knew and all loved and hated at times when the crankshaft wasn't ready. And, but anyway, Roger Keane introduced me to Mike. And Mike used to do the odd international race, and he had an early TZ700 that he bought from America because he used to go out to the States and things like that. And Roger said, look, you want this young bloke, Steve Parrish, on it to share your bike at a, I don't know. It was that a was a long time race. ago. Did they call you a young bloke? <laughs> yeah, they did. Yeah, absolutely. I was even more ridiculous, a young up-and-coming star. So they got all that wrong, didn't they? But anyway, we went to somewhere like Zan. It was somewhere in Belgium. I can't remember. or something. some weird track. Um, and it was quite, I still giggle about it because the main event was going to start at four o'clock in the afternoon, but at two o'clock they had this sort of invitation race where I think there was 200 pounds equivalent in Belgian francs or something. And so Trimbo said, well, Davos, you might as well go out and uh, do this, get the 200 quid and it'll pay for some of the diesel. So lap two, I fired it over the hedge. <laughs> that, was the, <laughs> that was the end. And, and sort of cartwheeled his TZ 700 down the road. So I became no longer this up-and-coming young superstar as this little knobhead that just crashed his bike. But that was sort of the first time I got to know him, but we stayed friends. And you're absolutely right. We had a, a love-hate relationship, which I'm very pleased to say ended up as a love relationship because we got on really well. Mike, Mike was a very intelligent man, very um, adroit, I think is the word. Um, I had to look it up the other day, but it, it sums up Mike very well. And he's the kind of guy that you can have equals amount of fun with but never step the wrong side of the boundary with him because he would remember exactly where you were. And I can understand where Steve uh, <laughs> thankfully <laughs> rekindled that friendship that was... Uh, yeah. But Mike was yeah. also the clumsiest bugger in the entire world. I mean, yeah. the times he would knock something over in inappropriate moments or... or the, I've, I've got these memories. Uh, we used to call him the honey monster because if you remember right. the adverts from the 80s where you don't forget to tell him about the honey mummy and he'd right. come crashing through the wall instead of the door. Open the door and come in. So we used to make this. The, Mike has always been the honey monster. And, and right. so I would ring him up. He would always answer the phone. Oh, he? Like, right. he did every time. Yeah. But to, to, to some of the stories, Macau. Macau, there's endless stories from Macau. We could, we could fill 10 right. podcasts with Macau stories. But the, the one that I remember really well, as a motorbike racer, you're always impatient. So there I am sitting in a, in a car, hire car. And Mike's gone off with the keys to just deliver a document. And it is 35, 40 degrees in this car. I'm cooking like a bloody roasting dog with the windows, you know, no air con, no nothing. I'm sitting there and I'm getting more and more and more annoyed. And I'm looking in the, I'm the driver. He's got the keys. So I'm sitting in the driver's seat and I'm looking in the mirror and all of a sudden Mike appears running, which you never saw Mike Trimby run very often. And he's got his briefcase on the end of his dirty, great big long arms. And as he cornered around the corner, he stuck this briefcase, which must have been full of junk and I don't know why else, straight into the ghoulies of this little Chinaman that was walking in the opposite direction. <laughs> and Mike was spinning out of control. Sorry, sorry. I'm terribly sorry as this bloke's rolling around on the floor. <laughs> now emasculated in some way or another. But um, <laughs> Trimby, he was a wonderful man who had great empathy for what, motorcycle racers needed having been one himself but yeah. the way he managed to translate that from a time steve from your era which was fractionally before mine um where it was a massively dangerous sport and you were just like fodder for promotion they paid you as little as they could get away with 
never spent right. any money on safety or any of the infrastructure that was seen as as normal nowadays. And people were killed every weekend, every race meeting you went to, if you raced on the whatever track right. they forced you to race on to earn money back in the day. Um, Trimby was the first person that made a difference and continued to make a difference. His legacy is massive throughout the world. If you don't know Mike Trimby, which most won't, that's he's unheralded. Not many people know who Mike Trimby was. Um, only now would a lot of youngsters be realised, even motorcycle racers at trackside, even you know your Quattararos and the like will be now looking at all this stuff that's now coming out from old folks like me and you, uh, yeah. and stories and magazine articles and, and even the podcast that I said I did with the, with, the, with the BBC. I mean, most people haven't bothered to listen to that. Of course mm. they haven't because he's yeah. yeah. a guy that they hardly know anything about. He's not a, a household yeah. name in motorcycle racing. Put that together now with what everybody's saying, and you'll get a mark of the man. However, the professional, Steve, got your phone on. <laughs> uh, and it's only Chris Herring. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he um, no, no, you're absolutely right. We all owe him a, a debt of gratitude. Um, I think, you know, he's arguably saved my life and your life and many other people's lives because the circuits, uh, it, during from the start to the end of my uh, career of racing, 10, 12 years, Mike Trimby intervened and it got better. And it certainly got better after I finished and after you finished. So there's no question about it. You're absolutely right. And But what a week it's been. I don't wish to dilute Mike Trimby. We lost Paul Bird, didn't we, at the start of the week? Paul um, Bird, but, just a few weeks ago, Barry Mead from Mead Speed. I mean, I think that there's a there's there's you know definitely a trend at the moment, Steve. We'll be, maybe this will be our last conversation. <laughs> well, maybe, and 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 I'm not wishing to. I don't want any sympathy, you guys. But I lost my brother yesterday, and and that I mean oh. sounds quite ridiculous, but it just seems to kind of go on, doesn't it? These things, and and he hadn't been that ill, but I think what it does to us, it 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 makes you realise that um, you know we're not here forever. We're here for a good time, not a long time, and you have to expect all these things. And I wasn't massively close to my brother, but still, he was my brother. And I don't know. It, it sometimes refocuses you a little bit, but isn't it ridiculous how you refocus for one week and then you're back to your normal old grumpy self and and carrying on? And it's fact. Mm. Well, I think that you, yeah, I think you're slightly wrong there, Stevie, because you've you've obviously made adjustments to your life this weekend. You've decided that cool. um, it's your last weekend of racing, and you'll focus yeah. more on your boat in Palmer yeah. or wherever it is nowadays. I can't remember where your your house is now. Um, yeah, it is out that way. But, and but I, yeah, and I, um, I've made a decision right. as well on exactly the same thing. I think you look around and reassess what you want to do with your life, and uh, I think there's a lot of people that are probably listening to this that are of a certain age that might be considering the same thing. Um, don't well, don't do it too late, I think is the point. I think so, yep. And I often mention it. It was when Barry Sheen passed away, which ironically, his birthday would have been 73 today. Um, and I say so I raced with Freddie uh, the weekend, but Barry's last words for me, and he was obviously not long to go in his life, and I left his house in Australia, and he said, at least, Stavros, we won't die wondering. And I've always stuck with that, because if we wondered about doing something, we generally did it. It's not always possible. People can't afford to do it, but do your very best. That's all I say. Well, one thing's certain, mm. Steve, we ain't going to die young. No, there is no question about that. There's no doubt that we, we've surpassed that era, haven't we? <laughs> but it, it's um, it's just been one of them horrible weeks. And, and all those people, we will continue, and they'll crop up in our lives. Something will turn up, and we'll go, oh, what about Birdie? He did this, and Mike obviously did that, and my brother, and so on and so on. And it just goes on, doesn't it? But, you know, the time for me... And this will be the same again for you, Steve, because we parallel on this. You know, when you've had that intensity, you, you kind of, I used to think there was something wrong with me because somebody would be killed over the weekend and I'd be focused on the next weekend and you'd move mm. on. 
Yep. But when you yep. when you finish racing, suddenly your empathy returns and everything comes back to you, and and you become slightly more emotional when you lose a friend or mm. or look back at friends you have lost. Mm. But the the time for me coming out of Mizano, I I remember what it was like. Um, and you you packed everything up. You've got everything back in the truck. You're in the driving seat, and you're about to come out of the circuit, and you come past all the people still in the bars on the tents on the side, and you go to all the people walking out the track, and the sun's going down. It's all got a bit cooler. And you're a man down, and you realise yeah. at that point as you drive yeah. to wherever the next circuit, or you're going yeah. home, or whatever it might be, um, yeah. that you're a, yeah. you're a man down. And 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 I think Trimby, there are probably more people thinking that coming out of Mizano than even for wow. any rider. I think that sure. Trimby has affected so many people over so many generations of promoters, of media, rider, prom, you know, owner, uh, yeah. parents over decades yeah. now, forty odd years. He has been yeah. rejigging that paddock. Yeah. What a picture that was, wasn't it? With a whole, I don't know if people saw it, but I've seen the picture. Someone showed me at Goodwood, the whole of the MotoGP paddock, which I I'm, I don't know, what is it, 500, 600 people, something, I don't know what it is, but every single one was stood on the track with uh, their thoughts for a minute silence for Mike Trimby. And I actually, it was my instigation at Goodwood, uh, we have a driver's briefing, 30 riders, and I decided we'd have half a minute's clapping because I thought that was probably more appropriate in some ways. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, so, I mean... Yeah, sad times, but exactly what you said, Keith, but for me, I, and the very, very worst was, you'll remember, Mick Patrick, the worst part about it was driving out of Cadwell Park and seeing a van and caravan left there. That even... It, it, you know, it just multiplied the thoughts and terrible things, and, and I had to give his wife a lift home. It was the most dreadful probably day of my life, honestly, yeah. Well, it's things like that, Steve, that Mike Trimby will remember, and that is the reason what inspired him at the time, to make it safer well, for all of us. At, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and well, well, there is no man that's done a better job. I mean, he's done a great job. His legacy will live on forever. And absolutely. Grand, Grand Prix motorcycle racing and all the other disciplines in motorcycle racing, because all of those things trickle down at the end. Whatever the the, the you know mm. MotoGP rules are, as far as you know track safety and the like, those ideas, those thoughts, those those protocols mm. um, trickle down through all the other classes eventually as well. Mm. It lifts the bar for everyone, doesn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's a massively uh, a massively sad loss, isn't it, and one that will uh, be felt for a very long time, uh, I'm sure. But it's nice to hear some some of those stories there. Um, let's talk about MotoGP in 2023, Steve. How, how have you uh, how have you seen it? How have you viewed it? What are your thoughts on it so far? You, uh, well, I suppose we haven't had you on at all, really. So, you know, we've got sprint races. You're a fan? Yep, I am. Um, I'm a fan of watching racing. And so um, it seems to be happening in most sports now. Everyone is so commercialised, they have to kind of cram in as much as they possibly can. I guess it all started F1, which it often does. Things do like that. Uh, yeah, no, I think it, it's absolutely perfect. What do I think about this year? I can't believe, like most of us sat here, what... Yamaha and Honda are, are doing and, and Suzuki disappearing and Kawasaki not involved and it's like the Japanese are getting their asses kicked and if we went back 10 years ago I wouldn't have believed it if someone had told me that that the Europeans are coming and they're going to take over and, and do everything so I think to me that's the biggest shock of the year um, that that they have fell behind in such a great way and I don't quite know how they're going to gather their skirts up and, and pick themselves up we'll wait and find out I've always said in the past I bet Keith had bet oh well you never go far wrong with Honda Biggest manufacturers that have been in racing so long, generally they come right. Well, they're going to have to get their asses into gear now. Interesting as well, Steve, you should say that because uh, Mick Doohan, even the mighty Mick, who was Honda through and through, you know, mighty Mick said 
and I wrote the quote down, something needs to change regarding Mark Marcus, that is, I'd be looking at the best option. Yeah. That was Mighty Mick Look. talking about the situation yeah. between Mark Marquez and, and Honda. I mean, and for him to turn around and say something like that is pretty fundamental. Yeah. So yeah. the Mark Marquez yeah. story, I mean, the Grassini move to the satellite Ducati team grew in in, in momentum during the course mm. of the Catalonia and then into Misano, but then slowly but surely started to subside. It's going in waves with Mark Marquez. Right. And of course, Mark Marquez is not dispelling any of those rumours either, which I think is fairly significant. He's keeping the, you know, the, the toes of of, of the yeah. on the Japanese to the fire until finally he makes his mind up. It's today, actually. We're recording on Monday. It's today that makes the difference for both Fabio yeah, Cotteraro. Yamaha have promised all sorts of stuff for today to test. And it's today where we find out whether Honda have brought enough to keep Mark Marquez on side or whether it spins completely out of their control. And he decides to go somewhere else. This today, the test at Misano today, is the most significant test I think we've had uh, certainly this year. Yeah, probably probably for a long, long time with someone like him as such a great champion. I still have a lot of faith and belief in Mark Marquez when he's and when and if he's fully fit and he can't be far away now. Would he finish seventh at the weekend? I think he had a pretty good run. It was um, seventh in the end, I think. Um, yeah. The most remarkable run of the weekend has to be the retired and wild card only Danny Pedrosa. Oh, absolutely. Fourth place at right. one point, I thought he was going to pinch third. He did get a, he did get a, a, a written warning at the end, though, because he was running lower tyre pressures um, than he should yeah. have been. The second ever written warning to be given. Yeah, well, you're allowed yeah, a written yeah, yeah, warning. Yeah. Your first, first one in the new rules this year has been a written warning for low tyre pressures. But watch out, um, the, the, the penalties are coming soon. Yeah, was that the carbon fibre frame as well? Well, there's the question. Yeah, they won't confirm it, but yes, I think that the, right. you know, like he has been running the carbon fibre frame, um, but whether he ran it in the race or not, I couldn't get to the bottom of that by the time we um, we got to these recordings. So, but I mean, a remarkably tough Grand Prix, and one of those ones where when Binder crashes out and the and the the, the quick KTM guys crashes out, and yet it's the it's the the little samurai who comes through to, to be fourth place and to be pressurising the top three guys. Pretty mm, impressive yeah, no, stuff. But as you rightly say, you very rarely get a test ride. It comes out and sits up that far up the front there, and that's exactly what Danny is. And uh, No, I, I love Danny Pedroza. I, I know I've known him like you for a long, long time. But he came and raced at Goodwood um, three years ago, I think it was, and just slotted in there like the rest of the lads, bumbled round in about fifth or sixth place. I remember overtaking him. You know, it's like thinking, But he just... He's just such a lovely lad, and I know and I've read stories, and I often do about him being a bit uh, negative and not really joining in with everyone. But boy, you get him away from Grand Prix paddock, and he's the loveliest guy and has a lot of fun. So great to see. Yeah, really, really good. Uh, good job it wasn't windy. Can you imagine the carbon fiber frame of Danny Pedros on it? It's only <laughs> way about 26 kilos. Lying. It? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was a fantastic result uh, for, for Danny Pedrosa. Um and and telling as well. The other KTM rider is not able to uh, to keep up it. Well, at least Binder uh, bidding it. Unlike him, though, I just want to come back, though, um, to the Marquez and Honda situation because I read an interesting article over the weekend because obviously down at LCR they had um they couldn't use Ica Laquela this weekend because he was uh back on well superbikes and they brought in their test rider um uh, Takumi Takahashi mm. he failed to qualify or failed to get into the 105 percent so he mm. couldn't take part in anything now he he won the Suzuka eight hours right and and that's obviously quite coveted he's not 
clearly not a terrible rider, but how does something a how does something like that happen? And b what could they have used somebody else to to who who could have had a better chance and and banked data because at a time where Honda desperately need to finish races and gather data from a Mark Marquez point of view, doesn't that look a bit you know why why are you rewarding a rider who's you know what yeah he's won okay the biggest race for Honda this year but he's not exactly going to deliver the data that we need to improve the MotoGP bike I'm I'm suspecting it was part of his contract probably and it was a little bonus for him that would be Mm. how it would be with Honda you you actually said it right I think it probably still is the biggest race for Honda the eight-hour race is probably more prestigious than winning the world championship in some ways I guess it was his thank you very much for doing that but it just goes to say as you rightly said there he's not a terrible rider by any means but that is how far away I think possibly eight-hour bikes, stroke superbikes are compared to Grand Prix bikes. Now, pressing buttons and doing this and ride heights and everything else, and it would mm. discombobulate you the first time you get on it, I think. I'm surprised they didn't test it probably in Japan beforehand. But, but yeah, two sides of that. One is that Honda are so pleased with him for winning the eight-hour race. Wham, bam, there's your little Christmas present. Trouble is, of course, Honda and Yamaha just do not have. I mean, Yamaha obviously, Cal Cruslow is, is 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 testing in Aragon. Um, he's getting ready for his wild card ride in uh, Motegi in Japan later on in the year. Problem is, they don't have that great big run of riders. Look at KTM at the moment; they've got a, a you know talent absolutely logjam a bit at the moment. The big deal is is where yeah. is you know Acosta going to go? Pedro Acosta is looking so good at the minute; he's going to be you know right there in the in the Moto2 World Championship. He'll move straight across, I'm sure. Jack Miller is is all of a sudden finding himself out on a limb. I can see Acosta taking Miller's ride and Miller uh-huh. being back in a satellite team anytime yeah. soon. So, sure. um, And the same with Ducati. They've got so much talent, so many bikes down on the grid. It's still, Steve, this is interesting because me and you haven't actually spoken about this, but I can't quite understand why Dorna haven't opened... There's obviously a, a political situation. I'll try not to answer my own question because I want to hear what you got to say. But there's obviously some kind of political thing behind the scenes that are restricting Dorna from actually being able to just say, well, we'll have a couple more KTMs on the track. Because that would yeah. seem to please everybody. It would give more bikes on the track, KTM a little bit more data and, and more in line with the eight bikes that Ducati have got on track. There is something that we don't know about that, that has restricted Dorna from being able to do that because surely we would all benefit, and certainly KTM would benefit and want, a couple of extra places on the grid. Do we know it's coming from Dorna or do we know if it's coming from KTM finances? Can they do that? That was often the story with Honda and Yamaha. They said we actually can't produce enough parts or enough staff or whatever. But I, I, can't, I can't answer the question because I don't know. Do you think it is coming from Dorna or is it coming from KTM where they actually haven't physically got the the assets and, and everything to do that. I think KTM has shown that they're chucking the kitchen sink at it. I don't think it's going to be funding. And look yeah. at where the money's coming from. You know, the Red Bull situation, the Austrian situation. Well, it's a, you know, there's a massive amount well, yeah. of money going on there at the moment. But I wonder whether there's something like, and Harry, this brings you in nicely with the Formula One thing, where you know you've got the the Concord Agreement that's in mm-hmm. Formula One that restricts what teams can do and what can be done with the rules and so on and so forth. I mean, is there a situation where maybe Ducati have a veto over? You know, maybe Ducati agreed to fund and to supply more motorcycles to the grid to keep the grid numbers up when they needed grid numbers to be kept up. And so, therefore, Ducati said, yes, we will do that, providing you don't give the same um, dispensation to another team, perhaps. Maybe there's a, a, a contract in the background that is the manufacturers are restricting any more motorcycles unless it's a different manufacturer and not just a badged one like K2 
KTM have obviously got gas gas um, in yeah, in, uh, right. in MotoGP. So yeah. I, I just wondered, Steve, whether you'd heard anything along those lines because you're normally sort of um, fairly well fingers in all the pies. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I haven't, to be perfectly honest. Um, uh, yeah, I can't answer that question. It does seem rather strange, but I guess what KTM have got to do is to build a bike that is equivalent or better than the Ducati for the teams to switch those, to those manufacturers. And you'd be rather a fool at the moment to take to chuck a Ducati back to, any, to Ducati, wouldn't you? Mm. Yeah, Keith, you would be. You... But there's a few people that want uh, Aprilia's, it would seem, at the moment as well. It's all got so bloody close, hasn't it? The Europeans really are kicking uh, the Japanese um, yeah. proverbial butt yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Well, this is Absolutely. the thing, though, Keith, right? You, you mentioned, obviously, the today, the t on Monday, the 11th of September, a big day for Fabio Quattararo and Yamaha. You know, they're giving him a new chassis, new aero, new engine, all for him to try. If it doesn't go well, where where do you where does Fabio go? Where does he end up? I should think with his head down the toilet. Um, <laughs> he's. I, I think Fabio Quattararo. I think Mark Marquez. Mark Marquez has gone about it in the way that we all wished we could. In that he's um, he's very smart, politically very very astute. He's not quite as emotive as Fabio Quattararo. And I think that Mark Marquez is really roasting the feet of the Japanese at the moment to make sure they give what he expects. And I think where that's going to come from, as much as in motorcycles, is in personnel. What he's going to be looking at is who are the teams and team leaders behind that motorcycle. Uh, he may be looking for changes there, wants to buy in talent perhaps. Yamaha has been the same old team for such a long time. You would wonder whether that, is a yeah, I know we got Ken Wozakowski, I think, in his I can't ever say his name properly, sorry, and I apologize. But uh, Ken came in from Suzuki uh, and, and they bought in some talent that, that was cast adrift by Suzuki when they decided not to continue in MotoGP. And I think modern day racing is all about the talent behind the scenes, and maybe that coordination that we got from Rivola at Aprilia. Gigi Delinia at uh, Ducati, that suddenly has become a model that the Japanese need to follow. And one that you wouldn't force them into in the past. It would be a Japanese crew and that would be it behind the scenes. But I get a feeling that they might be buying into the European perspective fairly soon. And uh, and we might see some of those talented personnel that, that the European teams have got being poached by the Japanese. Mm. Well, yes, Harry well knows it's... Um... Formula One, it's often about um, getting um, the engineer and, and the man behind it. And the Japanese, I suspect, don't want someone coming in and telling them exactly what they should be doing because they've always done it themselves and it's always sort of worked, hasn't it? But you're right with Mark Marquez. He's not, I don't think he's asking for any more money. I don't think there is any more money in the world is other than he gets paid <laughs> now. But he's asking for a bike, isn't he? And that's quite a strange situation to be in because it was always probably back in the days that I can remember, it was who paid the most. You went there because you were pretty sure of your talent could make the difference on that bike and there wasn't such a vast, vast difference in those machines. But it, I think the Japanese now need to go and buy themselves an Adrian Newey or something like that, somebody to come along that has that ability to sometimes copy. You have to, you really do. Um, and they are starting to do that now. And I think uh, the main chief engineer is the, probably going to be the second best paid person out there to the rider. I tell you what, I'm smiling away here, Steve, because Steve was my boss at Yamaha. When Steve retired, I went and rode for Steve when he ran Yamahas in this country. Um, 
He's an interesting character, I can tell you that for nothing. If, Didn't pay a lot, did I? <laughs> in between the wind-ups. Uh, I, I'm always... With Steve, I mean, Steve's... Pa- cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Personality is, is, is probably front and foremost in most people's minds. But it's funny how Steve isn't really looked at, apart from people like us that are around the, the game, just how good a bloody motorbike racer he actually was. Right, and there's that kind out. of conflict between the joker and and the motorbike racer. And that leads me really to the to our days where we drove the truck, we booked the ferries, we cleaned the bikes, we pumped the tires up, we did everything there was to do. We, we did our own... Um, uh, spying around the paddock to see what other people were doing as far as gearing and any kind of little trick bits they would do and how simple the motorbikes were mm. in just 30 or 40 years to where they've adapted to now. I mean, the changes mm. are absolutely stark and quite remarkable. Mm. Yeah, but the, the, in our day, and we go back to it, when you were riding for me, we did everything. We welded stuff up, we bored stuff out, we drilled things, We uh, whereas now everything comes in a box and the majority, um, I think they're called technicians. It was a mechanic in our day. The technicians nowadays are fitters, aren't they? They take something out of a box and fit it. I'm not taking anything away from because they've got to be good at what they do and they've got to be precise and they've got to be methodical. But it's the engineer, the the developer you need now. And I talk about Adrian Newey and who's a mate of mine and people like that, that innovative is that they're able to get something, see something, make it better, have it made and fit to that machine. And your man was Adrian Gorse, and he was pretty good at that. Adrian Gorse would be like you. He'd walk around the paddock, and he'd have a look at what someone's got. He'd come to me, see if I'd got the budget to do it. Generally, no, because... But but I think it's so, so important now that you, you don't get left behind, and that's exactly what Yamaha and Honda have done. Well, Maybe Suzuki was smart. Maybe Suzuki was smart. It's data as well, isn't it? I mean, that's the thing, I think, where the Japanese have been left behind. They've only got a few bikes out on the track compared with the likes of Ducati. And the, the data cool. engineers are the ones that seem to make the difference at the moment. But you're right. Yeah. It's the Adrian Newey deciphering all of that data as it comes through. I mean, it's enormous, the amount of broadband width you need at a racetrack nowadays just to download all that bloody stuff. Yeah, sure, sure, I, sure, sure. And, 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 and also, the riders have to be able to look at that as well and and try to adapt that onto the, the racetrack. We started with a bit of data logging, if you remember, but it was very, very kind of agricultural, wasn't it? But nowadays, I have to say, people say, oh, these MotoGP bikes got all the electronics on, but then about you, I don't know if I'd want to be sat on 300 horsepower having to press a button every time I got onto the straight and press this button and do this and everything else. I, I was well overloaded with just turning the throttle and putting the brakes on. Yeah, but the trouble was we got no grip and a power band of about 2,000 RPM. So if you tried to think about anything else, mate, you were going to the moon. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, quite possibly. But it is it is a completely different world. You're right. It's electronics. It's data. It's putting 
It's finding the traction that you require. It's finding the power band that's required, or when I say required, to be better than the next one out there. And it is, it's a group of people that have to work very, very closely together. And then you need a young rider that can do what you tell him, not somebody that's got ways, set their set ways about them. And I think that's what's happening more and more. Kids are coming through, probably from PlayStations nearly, from the start, and, and can press buttons and do this and analyze data and see what's going on. It is a completely different world. Nevertheless, like all of us sat here, we admire those guys that can do it. I tell you what, Tony on email has sent a question in, which might be quite apt. Um, he started his caveat. He's caveated it with, it won't happen, I know. However, how close would a, a plus 130 kilogram two-stroke be to today's MotoGP machines if the current technology were to be applied to the 500s? benefiting from modern tires suspension electronics brakes and aero would they get close to keeping up or is is this current formula so powerful they would not even get within 107 percent i don't care let's see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah me too come on tony yeah, let's, let's make let's it happen the, let's get the smoke I, I don't know i mean very very difficult to say the only thing i was absolutely shocked and astonished at was when motor gp four strokes came in i couldn't believe how much better than they were than the the two strokes at that time it was extraordinary we all said that the the last two strokes that valentino rossi road and mick doans and people like that that were fairly highly developed of course were the the ultimate motorcycle the animal that well, i think they had 200 horsepower then or something like that and they weighed 130 kilos or whatever but when the four strokes came out i could not believe how they knocked two seconds a lap off the lap time so i don't know very difficult but less like he said let let someone have a go at it because yeah, the injection is so much better now, the uh, the way you can build them. I'm sure there was an Australian company that was still working on two-strokes that reckoned that they could get the same horsepower. Don't know, I don't know. Great, great question. Thank you for sending it in. Uh, we just need someone to build it. Who was it someone has built? Um, Suter. 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 Suter built a, a Suter. bike. It was Suter have built a bike that's, that, that you can buy. That's a, I think it's a track, right. day, yeah. track day orientated machine. It's a, I think that the, a comparison, Harry, the one that you'll be familiar with is the way that, you know, I love watching a YouTube clip of Ayrton Senna going round yeah. Monaco. Um, it looks like the mo the hardest car to drive in the entire world, and yet it's miles slower. Even though it sounds like it's faster, it looks like it's faster, but it's miles and miles slower than the boring yeah. hybrids that yeah. we now have that, that look easy to drive, but clearly they're obviously not because they're arriving... Yeah at a corner faster than the, that Senna would have. They're accelerating out of a corner faster than Senna would have. It's just the way technology has moved on. And the drivability, rideability. I mean, anybody can ride a MotoGP bike now. Harry, if you can ride a motorbike, you could ride a MotoGP bike. Whereas if you got on a 500 back in the days and tried to ride them bloody things, the second <laughs> it hit the power band, <laughs> you might find yourself in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> and certainly in a toilet. <laughs> um, I, I, I can't remember the rider's name but you, Keith will know Steve Wheatman has a lovely collection of old motorcycles mainly Suzuki's pretty much all Suzuki's um, and he had a young rider riding one of his RG500s at Scarborough and I was up there doing some demo rides and every single practice this rider went out for the bike came back on the trailer and they kept doing this and doing that and everything else and Steve said would you mind doing a lap on it and I did and it was absolutely perfect and the young lad had failed to realise he had to pull the clutch in and slip the clutch around the hairpins and was trying to drive it <laughs> around there. And every time we went there, it just went there and ground to a halt. Um, and that—that that is what Keith just said. They were finicky things to ride around. 
Um, but I would rather watch Senna all day long going around Monaco, wouldn't you? I wouldn't give a shit about the lap times. Even if it's 10 seconds lap slower, it'd look faster, it'd sound better, and it'd look better. It's an argument that is very pertinent at the moment, Steve, and one that we can go to straight away because the, the point is is that bikes are getting too fast for the racetracks we're racing on. And unless yeah. you can you know, find a low more runoff at some of them, eventually they're going to outpace themselves. But the, the, the perennial problem that they now have is the only way that you can start roping back the development of production of, of, of uh, uh, prototype bikes it brings you into the domain suddenly of the production bikes, which are going so bloody fast, they could end up faster than Grand Prix bikes if we're not careful. So the whole job at the moment has moved on to such a point, it's, it's almost a rabbit hole that everybody slipped down into, almost unknown, that, that is going to be really difficult to find a way back out of. But why have the production got so, got so good? Because they developed in the, product, the, um, the, the prototypes. Uh, and I often have this sort of little chat with myself and other people in that, why can you reel it all back when they need all the technology to build the road bike that everyone wants? And I can remember when everyone said, these wings, it's ridiculous. Why are we ever going to need that? You go down the showroom and buy yourself a new thousand sports bike now. What's it got on it? Huge, great big wings. Everyone wants them because they see them every weekend on television winning Grand Prix. So manufacturers are not going to continue racing and pumping millions of pounds in it when their R&D can't use it for uh, developing the product. So you're right, it is. And Going back to more runoff areas, who's going to go and watch a Grand Prix? I mean, I don't, I'll be quite honest, I don't go now because you're about, what, 400 metres away from the nearest you get to the racetrack because there's seven acres of gravel. I'm not saying you shouldn't have it, but it's become rather, I don't know, it just doesn't work for me. No, well, no. I understand exactly what you're saying there, but, I mean, again, it depends on what track and, and pick your pick your track half the time, doesn't it? I mean, some just aren't, but this is the argument with Silverstone quite often. It's one of the best tracks in the world to race but not the yeah. best track in the world to be at atmosphere and, and, and yeah. spectator-wise. And that's a great shame yeah. because it's a fan, fantastic, you know, racing circuit. Oh, sure. But no, 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 I, I completely agree. But that's just the way we've got. And if you want close racing and uh, and sadly going back into time and history, you go and watch it at the TT or Oliver's Mount where you sit on the grassy bank. But I'm not saying that's right. And you can't do that. Grand Prix riders wouldn't do that. But we have got into a rather sterile situation, I'm afraid. We don't get the kind of two-stroke smell anymore. We don't get the sideways action. And we're a long way away from the track. And I'm a grumpy old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and I second that. <laughs> uh, well, we had a few questions come in as well. But um, uh, a lot have wanted to hark back to uh, your days, Steve, uh, alongside Barry Sheen and just a Josh on Instagram and leads the way. He just wants some anecdotes, really. Like what? So what was you know Barry like on track, off track? What 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 were the differences? Were there any? Uh, a little bit. I mean, Barry Sheen was a showman. That's what made him so great and why it be so popular. Um, I often apologise, and in fact, I'm going to do it right now. And now I've retired. I was probably rude to some people when I was racing. I think Keith would be the same. You're so wrapped up in your own little mind, what's going on, what gear are you going to use? Am I going to get underneath someone turn one? And you, you're so focused on what's going on, often you ignored people. And I had numerous people said, oh, that bloody Steve Parrish didn't speak to me when I did this. And I apologised because I was pretty much focused. Barry seemed to be able to switch himself off a little bit in that, I don't know, he must have internally focused on what he was doing, but he was always so good with his crowd, his public, everyone out there. He'd got time for everyone. He annoyingly rem remembered everyone's names and had a, an incredible memory but he knew how to live a good life in his early days of racing towards the end it became a bit mundane and I think he probably got fed up with waking up in hospitals wondering who he was and where he was through 
crashing so many times. But Barry knew how to live a life. He was there was something rather special about him. He when he walked in a room, he was the George Best of motorcycling. It's an old anecdote, but he was good fun. Uh, and for me, and I get a lot of sticks saying, "Oh, bloody Parish just thinks he was famous because he was Barry Sheen's mate." Well, you should have been Barry Sheen's mate because he was a lot of fun. He opened up lots of doors, helped me immensely with my career. Um, and I still miss him to this day. But I think a lot of people have got tremendous anecdotes with him of him and, and we'll remember him forever. As your email has just come in, I'm sure he was a huge fan back in the day. There's still in the pipeline, and I keep going on about it, there's still a possibility of a movie. There really is. Um, but a lot of money's been spent trying to put it together. Trying to find the lead actor to be Barry Sheen is extremely difficult, but there is somebody working on it, and they have been for the last seven years right now, ironically wow. seven years. But what Barry, a movie it would be. Barry as a personality was incredible, but I I obviously was his teammate for, for a short period of time at Suzuki, and the one thing that I can emphasize more than anything was the business. He knew the business. He had empathy with people. You're absolutely bang on, Stevie. He, he really he was the Valentino Rossi of his time. He when, could certainly, you know, he always autographs. He always remembered people's names. That was the one thing that always I was remarkable oh. about. His 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 demand, his command of language, remembering people's oh. names. But more than that, mm. the business side of things. Barry always had his, always knew what to say in an interview. Always knew how to work a business perspective every inch yeah. of the way. He was very clever on that front. And the fact he took no shit. You know, he'd mm. turn up in a a, a Bortaco shirt when he was at a Yamaha dude because Yamaha had pissed him off about something or the <laughs> other. He was right. irreverent and right. right to the right point. I mean, even breakfast television, he's the first man that I'd ever heard call somebody, a, in fact, it was the Australian Prime Minister he called a wanker on British breakfast television. <laughs> I just I can't remember the name of the presenter at the time, but all he did was sink his head in his hands. It was a live show. <laughs> and he curled up on the couch for breakfast television, as Sheen calls the Australian. The Australian president had the temerity to put his hand on the back of the Queen and usher her into somewhere. Well, you don't touch the Queen. That's just not what you no. do, uh, no. even if you're an Aussie. No. And I just remember Sheen calling it, and of course, Barry will have already worked out that he could probably get away with the word wanker. It was pushing right. the boundaries at the time right. on air, but he right. did, and he never got yeah. castigated for it. I mean, the, the the complaints were very few, but the people that cheered and and yeah, well, Barry had it all worked out all of the time. Very yeah, yeah. Well, he passed away twenty years uh, ago, um, and uh, I think he'd have he'd have been in trouble nowadays, wouldn't he? But I've just had enough of it, frankly. And again, I'm going back to it. Do you know, the other thing you guys won't know, but at Goodwood, uh, for the past two years, I've worked with uh, some actors there. They come, when I say they're actors, at Goodwood, they have lots of different things going on. They'll have people going around with a suit on uh, selling watches and that type of thing that used to happen in the 60s. And they'll have uh, just uh, dodgy policemen and so on. And I used to work with the uh, road men, as they were called, and they'd They'd have an old mini pickup. We'd wear tatty clothes and sweep in the road and lean in on our brushes. And everyone loved them. They'd been doing it for 15 years. And we got laid off this year because it was not PC enough, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, and it's just, the world's gone a bit silly, isn't it? And everyone was going, where are the road men? Where are they? I'm going, well, wasn't allowed anymore. But 
But Barry would have probably been in lots of trouble if he'd have survived it, this time that we've managed to do so. But yeah, for the person's going, Barry Shee was an amazing gentleman, uh, just as Keith said, knew what to say, when to say it, but, but also worked extremely hard, a bit like a swan. He might be gliding along on the top there, but he pedaled like hell below because he knew that he had everything laid out. He would have exactly the right parts. He'd get them because he could speak the Japanese language. He'd have the best engineers he could possibly buy. He would watch what they're doing. He would go along and make sure everything was right. Um, and um, was a yeah probably someone that we all looked up to at the time, and and people should continue to do so. Yeah. Do you see any shades of anybody else um, coming well, through? A lot I mean, of people, yeah, a lot it, of people are saying Jake Dixon, are they? That uh, and I like Jake a great deal. Um, but can anyone ever be Barry Sheen again? Because you're not allowed to be, are you? <laughs> no, you couldn't I mean, possibly you can, be Barry you be, Sheen. You have to be yourself. I, there's no doubt in that. Yeah, but you can't afford to be that cheeky chap anymore now, can you? Can you imagine Jake Dixon saying that? You know, <laughs> Someone, you know, race the FIM president's a wanker. That would be the end of his career, wouldn't it? So you can't do anymore. Um, so I, I don't really know, but I just think it's going to be hard for anyone to be a character quite realistically now because the majority of people that we see racing out there started when they're six, seven years old. They were ushered around by their parents because that's the only way they would go racing. They didn't necessarily have a shag behind the bus shelter like we would do because they didn't get, you know, they went to an academy. The majority of the lads have all gone to academies and they've had people around them, managers and dietitians and psychiatrists. And they're, they're not what I call normal people. And I personally think to be a character nowadays, you've got to be nearly a normal person. They're, they've become homogenized beings. And there's nothing wrong with that because they have to be. If you haven't won a championship at the time you're 12, you're a history, aren't you? Mm. Can you imagine yeah. if they had psychiatrists and, and when, when we were on, half of us wouldn't get to the grid. <laughs> well, absolutely. No, the psychiatrist would have needed one. <laughs> and it would have been worse if they'd done um, blood tests and um, and the, and the like as well. The amount of alcohol that was going on back in the day too. Yeah, and yeah, I don't yeah. condone that, by the way. No, 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 yeah. no nor, nor do I. And I understand exactly where sport. And I'm not just talking about bikers. Every single sportsman out there now has to be a highly tuned, homogenised being that has gone through academies and have been fed correctly and and watered correctly and psychologically tried to put into the ways that. I even know some of the guys now that, that have this uh, frog, a poisonous frog, and they rub it onto their skin, and it, it helps their adrenaline pick up. And, and this is weird, very weird. Yeah, I only, the only frog I ever got away was when I was drunk and fell in a lake. <laughs> How times change. How yeah. times change. Uh, not I thought we were heading for a nationalistic type... Uh, <laughs> oh dear you read the amount of edits i had to do on this podcast week in week out with keith yeah God, i'm sure he, there'll he, be he plenty of so time. much trouble um look you mentioned you mentioned jay dixon there i think it's worth um touching on some of the moto two and moto three uh riders and and sort of looking at that young talent pool because unfortunately and fortunately there is so much talent but where do they go because there aren't many even to get pedro acosta onto the grid it seems in moto gp is is going to be a challenge and you know, he's just notched up another win. Uh, Arbolino's up there as well. He's limited um, some damage over the weekend. Dixon had a bit of a disappointing weekend, sort of halted his charge a little bit. Uh, and then Moto3, we've got Keith's favourite, David Alonso, once again, victorious on the top step. Jaron Messier, mm. Dennis Onchu, Olgado. Uh, Steve, who, who sort of catches your eye at the moment in, in those Moto2 and Moto3 classes? 
uh, all that you've just mentioned, but you're absolutely right. There's uh, there's uh, not enough seats and too many bums, isn't there? That's the situation mm. that it is. Uh, Jake, obviously, I support him as much as I can because, I, like Keith, I raced against his dad. He was a brilliant rider on a 502 stroke. He was a great site, world champion sidecar racer. Um, and so, it, you know, we support um, our own, I guess you'd say. And I don't really know, but it's not just this sport, is it? Formula One's exactly the same. There'd be queues and queues of people coming in. Um, unfortunately, some of them, it's the fact that if you've got a whole pot of gold in you with you, if you've got a wheelbarrow full of money as well, that helps, which I think is wrong, but you're never going to stop it. It's been the way of the world for a long, long time. Um, and I don't really know, apart from you know increasing the grid sizes and, and that type of thing, I'm really not too sure what you can possibly do. Same thing, just a bit of luck sometimes helps. You always come to a crossroads and trying to pick that right one is, is quite difficult. So I haven't got an answer to that. Um, I guess having a really good manager, having a wheelbarrow full of money and looking, having being a good looking person that speaks well, then that's what you've got to do. Like most things in this life, you've got to do better than the next person to get the top job. Yeah. We'd I, have a job to get past club racing nowadays. <laughs> oh, wow, wouldn't we just? Yeah, I say my biggest a- 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 accolade, I think, is I'm celebrating nearly 50 years without a proper job. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is a brilliant mm. achievement. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, I use the F1 analogy that you brought up. You know, there is a, there is a, a lot of talent that are not going to get to Formula 1 because there is a lot of talent already on the formula 1 grid but they started quite young and and they're having longer and longer careers than ever before i mean you look at fernando alonso and lewis hamilton still going into their 40s top of their game keith do you think we're going to see that in in moto gp with these youngsters coming in staying longer and longer and longer and then just you know hogging the seats that might go to young talent well we'd said it before about mark marquez it looked like he was going to go on to win you know 10 world titles 12 world titles or whatever it is and then it started to come apart you know how long will mark marquez still be in grand prix heading for about 30 years old now towards yeah it you can't predict in motorbike racing somebody runs out of motivation runs out of you know physicality if they've if they hurt themselves at some stage or another so you don't really know i think the turnover is probably going to be greater in bike sport because you can't clatter yourself quite as much as you know is the possibility in bike racing so i think that there is that turnover but the log jam is massive i mean there's so much talent coming through yeah. at the moment you've only got to look at the state you know and trying to pick which who's going to be the right one i think the rider market is so good at the moment that that they're getting them at a, a, a cheap price as well because there's so many there. You've not got to pay the kind of money you would have to pay to have a, you know, Alonso, for instance, coming through the Colombian at the moment. Well, I mean, he's a rookie in Moto Moto Three, and you know, third win of the year all of a sudden, and he's looking really, really, really good. And you would start to be putting some money on him. You would be trying to groom him towards the the the, the best teams that are available, but. But he might next week he might go and leg himself off somewhere and and all that investment is gone. It's a very very difficult. It's almost like run a roulette wheel. I mean, yeah, we've got a lot of talent coming through, but it's still unpredictable as to who's going to go where and who's going to go well on the next step up. You know, Moto three to Moto two, Moto two to Moto GP. Um, the only thing I would have said, and I keep keep banging the drum about this, we should have two more bikes on the Moto GP grid. You know, that that should happen. And I can't understand why it doesn't. And no one, Mike Trimby, I spoke to Mike Trimby, bless him, you know, a week ago about it when we were in Barcelona. I said, is it never going to happen? He said, well, it's it's set for other manufacturers. You know, but it still didn't make sense to me. You know, Mike 
could only let you know so much as a friend what was going mm. on behind the scenes. Uh, half oh. the reason why Mike was so stressed in Barcelona prior to Mizano, where they were going, was because they were putting together all the things that are gonna we are going to learn about in the last part of the season, moving into 2024, when there's a lot of changes coming our way. Um, so to put all the detail into that, and as it's become more complex and everything's become a lot closer racing-wise and rule-wise, you know, those details have to be spot on. You can't leave a gap in the rules or or a sentence, you know, dotted in the wrong place or or, or, or the like. So it's become much more crucial to get it right. But from a rider perspective, I think we're, we've got a glut of very, very, very good, re- good riders for all the reasons Steve said. They start so young. They've got good management and they've got good money. Mm. I, I actually remember racing with Lewis Hamilton down somewhere in a go-kart, like you say, when he was about 10 years old. So, yeah, your the wow. career is enormous, isn't it, going through that? And I reiterate what Keith said. I've, I've spoken about riders having dietitians, psychos, and teams almost certainly have got very good lawyers sitting around looking for any little loophole that they can find, which has happened in Formula 1 for many, many years, um, simply because if you can find a tiny loophole and you can use it for... It's usually only about three or four races because everyone else gets on the bandwagon. But they're the sort of things that win races now. And, and it's happened, doesn't it, over the period of time where, oh, you can't use that, but doesn't say you can't use that. And, and again, this is a lot to do with winning races. It's not necessarily always on the track, is it? It's the, it's the way you look at the rules and regulations. And some people might say it's cheating, which I was accused of on numerous occasions, but it was only the loopholes. Don't look like that, Keith. <laughs> Stavros, I've got so many stories of, 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 of actually not cheating. And I think the point you're making is is that a rule is a rule, and it's there to be got around. And I mean that's fair enough. Well, if it's legal to well, get around, then you get around it, and you try to get around it. And you did have a reputation for for for, for being a bit of a joker, and occasionally well, the uh, the the man to stretch the rules as far as you could. Um, but back in the day, I think it was easier than it is now to have to have done that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, yeah, it um, was. But that's why uh, you know the guys have got teams have got lawyers and people that know every sort of little bit about it. Back in our day, half of us couldn't even read, should we? So we just didn't know. There wasn't that many rules, was it? You turned up with your bike, five hundred cc capacity, I guess it was. Whatever you want, simple as that. It really was, wasn't it? Pretty much whatever tires you wanted. I don't think there was anything other than the fact that. It couldn't be more than four cylinders from my era. Uh, 500 cc's, you could put on any brakes you wanted. You've got an airing fairing as long as it didn't go over the front wheel. That was about it. And probably significant is you could turn up at the Grand Prix, turn up at the gate on a Thursday and talk your way into the grid to ride in that Grand Prix that weekend, providing you got a ticket from your federation. A trippy story. Good old Mike. We'll go back to Mike, shall we? So I'm in Mike Trimby's motorhome and I am absolutely fizzing with rage. Irene's in the corner. My girlfriend then, Carolyn, mother of my eldest daughter, Lauren, is is down the other end trying to calm me down because I've turned up at this racetrack. It's Axon, so it's a major one. It's the, the Dutch GTT, which is important to all of it. And uh, I've turned up there and I'm, I want to be on the grid. And as far as I'm aware, you know, my federation, the ACU, Autocycle Union, have, have done their their paperwork but they hadn't they hadn't done any paperwork at all i turn up and they said no we've not had anything from the acu and at that point where i'm absolutely exploding knock 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 on mike trimby's door and it's doug barnfield from the acu god bless him he's no longer with us was killed in a motorcycle accident but um uh, doug barnfield is at the door 
And as I've reached for his throat and tried to get him, Trimby, all in one movement, has managed to get my belt and hold me back. And luckily, Trimby's much larger than me, so he's pulled me back out of the way. But that was the kind of way that we went Grand Prix racing back in the day. It was a situation you turned up at a track and basically bullshitted your way onto the grid. And the grids were were far too big for the event. You would be allowed out to put a time down. And if your time was reasonable, you were in the Grand Prix. It was was like club racing only 40 years ago. The likes of Trimby and Co. have improved it to the Mm -hmm. professionalism that we have today. I think, yeah, Assel would have had at least 55 riders going for 40 on the grid. There was 40 on the grid, I think, back then, but there'd been about 15 that didn't qualify, and that was pretty much how it was. But there we go. Um, I'm sure the, the youngsters listening to this or whatever probably can't even appreciate and imagine what it's like, but it, it was pretty tough out there. There wasn't much money around out there, but boy, did we have some fun. If you didn't qualify, you parted even harder. <laughs> every cloud, every cloud. Yeah. Um, well, look, uh, that, I think that brings us nicely uh, to the end of the show. Thank you to everyone who um, sent in a question. Steve, thank you so much uh, for giving us your time. Who's going to be the 2023 MotoGP champion? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm always going for the favourite. I'm sure Bagnaia is going to be the man. Um, I can't believe how good the protective clothing is. That's another thing we've got to talk yeah. about. That accident, I watched that happen and thought, that's him out for the year just astonished that he could come back with a broken metacarpal I think it was on his hand and little bone in his ankle extraordinary but he seems a really smart lad that's probably given him a bit of a, a warning as to just back it up a little bit um and he got did he get third didn't he I think at the weekend just did. Bastion, Bastion, you were talking about Bastianini he's a metacarpal on the hand I mean actually Bagnaia oh. only ended up with bruising uh, I mean was I, it? Right. when he got run over by by Binder I, yeah. I thought we were going to end up with an Ian Hutchinson situation. So yeah, me too. Over poor old yeah. And yeah. Um, Binder, uh, Binder ran him over, and I thought, that's that's going to be Magnolia yeah. for the year. But um, yeah. to come back yeah. and podium, you know, and yeah. look as good as he does on it, that is not an easy track. 27 laps around Mizano in that kind yeah. of heat for someone who's um, yeah. had a clattering just a week earlier, pretty impressive. So, yeah, I'm with that's, you. I think Magnolia is um, back. Um, and what we saw about and Harry was said about the age. There's one thing that young kids like him and youth gives you, and that's you're pretty fearless. You know, you bounce and you mm. bumble around. But when you get older, when you, I think when you get 30-plus, apart from the enigma of Jeremy McWilliams, you, you, you just lose a little bit of fire in your belly and you just realise that it can be painful and do you want to keep smashing yourself to bits? And, and that's what's great when you're 20 years old, I think. So anyway, that's my, my money's on him, but it's not much of a gamble, okay. is it? <laughs> no, we'll hold you to that though, because you never know in MotoGP land. Um, look, again, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for sending questions. Uh, that is our lot for this week. Uh, but OMG MotoGP Extra will be here on Thursday with Keith and myself for a little 15 minute update. I'm sure we'll have some fallout from the uh, testing that's going on right now. I'm sure with our other news uh, cropping up too. So do stay tuned across the OMG MotoGP socials for that. Like, subscribe, leave a review, all that jazz. You should not have to do it by now. I ask you every single week, uh, but we really appreciate it. Uh, every review and like and subscribe goes such a long way. Um, but from myself, Harry Benjamin, from Steve Parrish and from Keith Hewitt, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.